Up next, we've got another panel, so very excited about this. It's economics as a form of storytelling. People might not have put economics and storytelling in the same sentence, but that's what we're going to do. And we're chaired by John Newbiggin. And then we've got Aaron Vastani, Julie Freeman, and Mark Maslin. So please welcome them to the stage. Thank you. Uh, well, hello, everybody. Um, we've got a, a pretty powerful panel here, which I'm sure is going to energize everybody for the next hour. So Mark, who you met earlier today, earth scientist. Julie, inspirational artist working at the frontier between science and arts. And Aaron, who is a journalist working, let's say, kind of on the front line of truth, reality, and things that are important. So three people doing three very different things, but all very important and all related to this idea of economics as a form of storytelling. But just as a kind of two-minute intro, I'm on the board of the Royal Docks management here in the, in the docks. And uh, it seems to me there are a number of stories embedded in the docks. We touched in a little bit this morning, but there are three, three layers of story which I think are worth mentioning. One is these docks illustrate the incredible acceleration and expansion of industrial capitalism in the 19th century. Because if you know the history of this bit of the river, if you start with the St. Catherine Dock and the West India Dock a little bit further up the river, both pretty tiny, then you get to Canary Wharf, much, much bigger, the West India Docks. But a few decades after they were built, they had to build these absolutely gigantic docks. You can walk for three kilometers that way and you're still on a dockside. So this incredible expansion and the consequences that it had for our planet, absolutely unprecedented in human history, it tells that story. The second story is one of the struggle between capital and labor, because these docks were notorious for completely disorganized, forget zero hour contracts, there were no contracts at all. It was work when you could get it and work if the foreman liked you. And it wasn't until people like Ben Tillett in the 1880s, right through to Jack Dash in the 1960s, fought back for labor to get a fair share of the cake. And then, of course, we saw in the 1980s the kind of rise of neoliberal economics and another, another story in the struggle between capital and labor where the docks were closed down, thousands of jobs were lost. The consequence for the community around here was momentous. As Mark mentioned earlier, the docks then moved to Tilbury. But whereas these docks employed 20, 30,000 men, the docks in Tilbury employ very few because it's technology that's driving it. And then the third issue that I'd like to mention is there's another story emerging in the docks now, and that's about the future. And it's an attempt to create a harmonious solution that brings together the economic needs, the social needs, the cultural needs of this community. And there's a real effort in the way the docks are being regenerated to ensure that the jobs that are coming here and the houses that are being built here and the public infrastructure and the cultural activity that's being created here creates a more sustainable and harmonious whole. And at the core of that is the intention of being as carbon neutral as possible in the sense of being driving towards carbon neutrality. And that's taken very, very seriously. And given that two elements in the docks are an airport and a major international exhibition center, that is a big challenge. It's a serious challenge, but it's being taken very seriously. So there's three layers of story embedded in these docks right away. And it reminds me, Jean-Luc Godard said, Reality is so complex we can't deal with it often, and we tell stories as a way of giving form to the complexities of reality. 
So I mean, I'd like to start by asking each of you, just in three or four minutes, five minutes max, uh, to give us a little story about something that you're, a story that you're engaged in at the moment that you think helps to bring some of the complexities of reality into a form that makes it acceptable, sustainable, comprehensible to people. Aaron, why don't we start with you? Oh, OK. Um, it, it's a real pleasure to be here, by the way. Um, I'm going to start, actually, by really insisting that economics is a story. And this is something that was already highlighted upon. This is a story. And I think for people in the creative sector or people who study humanities, they don't recognize that. It is a story. Economic students go into universities, factories, in other words, ready to produce graduates who believe a certain creed. And this creed is around 250 years old. So you see Adam Smith writing The Wealth of Nations in the late 18th century, broadly coterminous with the arrival of the steam engine and the American Revolution. Uh, so this is a real juncture, a real moment in human history, which we're still sort of living in. And it's the story that we're still living in. The industrial era, liberal constitutionalism, market capitalism. And you can see these undergraduates and these graduates going in and being taught by rote what they should and shouldn't believe. And the quintessential story within all of that is human nature, which of course is plastic. We know this. Humans have been around for three, maybe 400,000 years. They've lived in a variety of different anthropological contexts. And yet apparently, wanting to live in a semi-detached Barrett new build with a, you know, I don't know, a hybrid Mazda is human nature, right? Clearly ridiculous. But that's the story we're told. Clearly a ridiculous, fatuous reduction of what human nature actually is and its infinite variety and, and complexity. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. That's two and a half minutes, probably. Um, what I want to say, though, is the, the, the key point to my book, which is called Fully Automated Luxury Communism, don't let the title put you off, it's meant to be provocative, is that we are living in the twilight of a certain set of stories. Uh, the first is market capitalism. Let's call it the Great Acceleration too. Let's add a sort of a climate, uh, a climate and earth sciences aspect to this as well. We are living at the sort of twilight of our relationship to nature, which meant more growth, more people, more things, more commodity, more energy. You can't do that forever. We're already seeing that, by the way, with planetary population plateauing. So, you know, humanity reaches a billion people in 1800. We're about 8 billion today. We'll reach 10 billion this century. And then we'll start to go down. And this is a really wonderful distillation, I think, of how, no, that x, y axis doesn't just go up forever with everything. OK, and that's the ideology. That's the story we're immersed within. The secondary story of capitalism is, is that of neoliberalism and the idea that something only happens because it's for profit. And that's why you get skyscrapers here. You don't get them in Rotherham or in Oldham or in Bolton because the money has to make money, ergo capital. Um, and that has been um, situated and pushed onto every single aspect of human existence under a certain form of capitalism, intensified form of capitalism, over the last 40 years. Now, those two stories are coming to an end alongside a third story, which is the hegemony of the West when it comes to technological, economic, and political leadership, itself around 200 years old. So those are three big stories coming to an end, as well as a fourth story, which is, of course, this idea that we can be rapacious with the Earth's resources and there can be no cost. So the story I try and place in response to all of that is, like I say, what I call fully automated luxury communism which says that the challenges we're facing this century are absolutely extraordinary. Demographic aging, low to no growth, climate change, automation. But at the same time, there are also uh, contemporary possibilities for building a profoundly different kind of civilization, 
And I want to use that word, and I think that's a story in itself. That's a, that's a big story word, isn't it? Civilization. Think in those terms, human civilization. What is next for our civilization? Because the present trajectory, the present story, is one of self-destruction, uh, one of war, one of shortages, scarcity, shortcoming, hatred and enmity. And that, that doesn't have to necessarily be the case. We can carve and we can create a different kind of story. But it can't be the story of the status quo. So I think in the 21st century, as we live within this great disorder of the crises I just spoke about, which I think probably everyone agrees on, right? But left, right or center, um, we have to either create a better story or fall prey to a worse story. Ethno-nationalism, uh, you know, conservative or right-wing uh, responses to climate change. And if you think that's not a thing, I'll, I'll just sort of finish with this. There was a sticker I saw, um, save the seas, save the bees, uh, kill refugees, right? So this idea that, for instance, you want to protect this reified na nature of your domestic homeland, that can insert itself very comfortably within a, a climate politics. So it can be very reactionary, climate change politics, if, if you want it to be. So the left or, pro or progressives or, or people simply who believe in humanity uh, need to create a, a story of their own. Aaron, thank you. Julie, do you want to go next? Yeah, thanks. Just want to quickly apologize for the fact that we look a little bit like a Tory party conference up here. <laughs> <laughs> I want to apologize for that anyway. Um, yeah, so I guess the story I want to tell is um, the work I've been doing at the moment, which there, there's an installation of a prototype over there. And I've been working with the Open Data Institute on their power and diplomacy in data infrastructures. So we've been looking at um, this drive towards informational and economic power by those that are laying the material infrastructure of all the communications that we're using. And so they, that sort of divides up into three, three smaller stories, which is space, like the emergence and the proliferation of satellites that are being deployed into the Earth's orbit, and the colonialization of space, and then the space pollution that comes with it, which is a massive concern. And these are used for navigation and military uses, and, and it's, it, it's only by a few key companies that are doing that. And then moving further down, I want to look at the, we've been looking at the data centers and about how much their physical existence, they're like these huge monumental buildings, and they collectively use something like, if they were a country, they'd be like the sixth biggest consumer of electricity of all the countries in the world. I mean, it's a huge, amount of electricity that's used by them. They have a huge energy consumption that is way beyond even, I think, aircraft carbon footprint now. And then there's the subsea cables that we were looking at. And the, there's, there's about 450 subsea cables that exist around the planet. And they make an underwater web that is 1.2 million kilometers long. So there's these cables that are under the seas and they're just wrapping around our countries and connecting different countries. A lot of that is also sort of embedded in colonialist kind of trade routes and stuff. Those cables and these communication networks used to be owned publicly by publicly owned utility companies and now more often they're owned by consortiums that tend to be communications companies and then the four, the four big tech companies, Google, Meta, Microsoft and Amazon. And so between them, they, they have this power over our information, and then they have the power over the economic benefits that that power gives. 
So I've created three sculptures that are kind of, because all of these things are huge and they're at massive scale, I wanted to make something that was small. So the sculptures are small. They also are sort of non-digital, so they work with an analog material that changes form in reaction to electric current. They're really simple, they're really slow, so you have to study them and wait for them to move. And they play with this idea that everything online and the way that we receive our data is all so fast and immediate and we want it to be um, kind of spontaneous and when we want it to be spectacular. But these sculptures will make you stop and think and wait. You have to wait for them. You have to wait for the data to fluctuate. And the aesthetics of them are inspired by um, old navigational tools. So thinking about pre-data, pre-digital, when the people navigated using sextons, and they were still observing and measuring our planet, but using non-digital tools. So that's why they're made of kind of aged brass as a nod to that kind of the older days. And so this research that we've been doing and the work that's come out of it is very much a tight collaboration between researchers and the Research Institute, the Open Data Institute, and me as an artist and working out how we can work together to tell a story that is critically looking at these data infrastructures and to try and think about the materiality of the cloud and the way that what we're all consuming all the time is actually and has a massive impact on the planet. Thank you, Julie. Mark. Wow, how do you follow that? I have to say that I'm always in awe of artists, the ability to take the complexity of the world and actually present it in a unique and challenging way. I'm a scientist, but I also tell stories. And one of the stories that I've always been working on is our own history because there is nothing inevitable about the society we are currently living in. So I'm going to pick up on some of the themes that Aaron very kindly sort of uh, started on. And one of the big stories that I and colleagues have been working on is how has human history evolved? So we have a look at it. There are literally five major types of human society that have existed. We evolved in Africa, and we were hunter-gatherers. And those hunter-gatherers spread out through uh, the world into Europe and into Asia. And we have this romantic view of them, except, of course, as they spread out, they wiped out all the megafauna and therefore hit a crisis. That crisis, we then had the agricultural revolution, and we all became pastoralists. We then actually worked the land, which I have to say wasn't necessarily a good shift because then you're working 12 hours a day eh, instead of about three or four as a hunter-gatherer. I'm still very happy to go back to being a hunter-gatherer. So we have all of that agriculture. We then have mercantile capitalism that emerges in the 15th and 16th century. And this is really interesting because, as Aaron said, for the last 450 years, the economy of the world has been dominated by European countries not just European countries, but countries that, that we then went and actually took over. The Americas, both North and South, Australasia, and those countries. However, that's going to change in the next 10 to 30 years when, of course, the European-based economies dip below 50%. We then have the Industrial Revolution, which you wonderfully introduced, whereby suddenly we had new 
underclass, the workers. We had the emergence of socialism, Marxism, the idea that there was actually a protest there. And then, post-Second World War, we have what we exist in now is the consumption society, consumerism. And I think that's really interesting because up until the late 70s, it was being balanced by regulation, by exchanges between countries, until neoliberalism. And I agree completely with Aaron. Economics is about stories. Those economists in the Chicago School of Economics really fundamentally believed that neoliberalism was a good thing. Taking the training wheels of capitalism, removing all those sort of like pesky rules that stopped capitalism doing what it was supposed to do, suddenly would lift everybody, including the very poor, out of this mire of sort of like poverty and lack of sort of like goods and services, and it would work. I will give you one fact which keeps me awake at night. The four billion poorest people in the world own the same wealth as the eight richest billionaires in the world. Just let that sink in. One of those tables over there, that number of people, uh, white males of course, um, actually earn the same wealth as the bottom four billion people. And let's have a look at the economic systems and how it's doing at the moment, because we have to tell stories where everybody thinks that we're doing really well. Well, no, seven million children die needlessly every year because of preventable diseases and hunger. 820 million people go to bed feeling hungry every night, even though we produce enough food for 11 billion people. There's only eight billion. So it's not about lack of food, it's about lack of money. And unfortunately, over the last 10 years, that number of hungry people has gone up for the first time in human history because of those wars raging around the world. And the last one is one billion people still, to this day, do not have regular access to fresh, safe drinking water. That's one in eight people. So neoliberalism and the stories we tell about how wonderful it is that we've got a Tesla in our bungalow, etc. I'm getting old. Um, so guess what? Those are the stories we need to counter. We need to counter with stories of what's really happening. And of course, we've had these five societies. Some of them have been much more equal than the society we live in today. So there is no reason why we can't reinvent and have a new society which actually reduces the impact on the environment, perhaps even repairs it. We can plant trillions of trees if we want to, and therefore we'll have to find some fancy name. By the way, do not call it post-capitalism, because that gives you so much grief on Twitter. But, you know, perhaps post-consumption or a beautiful world. Thank you. Thanks. Well, um, so there's enough to keep going for about three weeks there out of those three contributions. And we haven't got very long, so let's just try and pick up a couple of themes. One is... Uh, we're in what uh, is fondly called the fourth industrial revolution and like all industrial revolutions previously it's produced all kinds of social and economic chaos a lot of people losing their jobs 
BT getting rid of 50,000 in the papers today, Royal Mail just got rid of 10,000, and so on. Jobs are changing very, very fast. What are we going to be doing in the future? AI is making all kinds of positive differences. It has all kinds of potential very negative consequences as well. I do a lot of work in Central Asia, Middle East and East Asia at the moment. Youth unemployment is already a massive issue. Urban intensification is creating informal economies where people are struggling to survive. Keynes wrote in the 1930s, by the 1950s, we should be at a point where we can work 15 hours a week and spend the rest of the week engaging in cultural leisure pursuits. That ain't what's happening at the moment. So what does the panel think is the future of a world in which there is AI at one end of the scale, massive youth unemployment and poverty, a lack of any kind of access to basic, what we would regard as basic services, let alone the benefits or disadvantages of machine learning. How do you see that that's going to play out? And what's the role of arts and culture in that? Because after all, arts and culture, cultural activities, dance, music, fashion, beauty, food, these are things that long predate any notion of something called the economy. They are the core foundational human activities. How do we sustain those in a world which is as unequal as you were saying, Mark, and in which there are eight knocking on nine billion people? A simple question for each of you. Aaron, you put your hand up, you go first. Yeah, the, the AI question is absolutely extraordinary. So PricewaterhouseCooper, published a report, I think, in, in before 2015, and they said that between 2015 and 2035, AI is going to add around 30 to 35 trillion dollars to the global economy. Um, maybe it's by 2050, but the point is lots of money is going to be added to the global economy. And the first insight from them was that 70% was going to go to the United States and to China. So imagine the steam engine arrives at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. We know what happens next. Industrial Revolution, British Empire becomes a powerhouse of finance, energy, industry, and of course militarily. So you can see how this race to AI really is a winner-takes-all effort when it comes to geopolitics and commerce. So if, you, if you're worried about what's already happened with regards to, say, California and big tech, you ain't seen nothing yet. And AI is coming for a lot of jobs. You know, Mark Cuban, who is, you know, he presents Shark Tank in the US, he famously said a few years ago that the world's first trillionaire would be somebody who basically works out the big commercial applications with AI, the person who basically works out how to lay off millions of people in legal services and accountants and whatnot, and all that value will be captured and accumulated by a single person or a single firm. Now, you might think that's absurd, that's so stupid. If you told me when I was a teenager, I'm getting old now, sort of 20 years ago, um, that there'll be a store online, an everything store, and it'll be owned, well, it'll be started, and it'll be primarily, you know, one of the major shareholders, we're a man worth $200 billion, and it'll be based in, you know, the United States, and it would have led to regular stores in your local high street in Bournemouth or Bognor or, you know, Peterborough, wherever, shutting down, I wouldn't have believed you. But that's Amazon. Um, and, and I think something very similar can happen with AI if we don't have a sort of um, attendant politics to to push back on it. And then, and then just quickly on the point of um, arts and culture. There's presently a strike, some people may have seen this, the Hollywood screenwriter strike. Um, and one of the demands, this is really extraordinary, is regarding AI. They don't want their work to feed machine learning algorithms which will recursively improve with the more screenwriting inputs they get. They don't want to automate themselves out of a job. Now you might think, and this is kind of a platitude, isn't it, with the creative industries, we can't be automated. 
There was this report in 2015, 16, 17, uh, by Sir Peter Bazalgette, and he said, we can't be automated. Don't worry, 87% of creative industries' jobs can't be automated because only humans are creative. To an extent, yes, but we, we, all, we all know that not everybody in the creative industries is constantly doing creative things. You know, the first draft of a script, for instance, is something that could be automated potentially, yes. Just as with coding, somebody who's translating code or debugging code, yes, that could be automated. So there will still be those jobs, but there'll be fewer of them. Uh, so massive implications for creativity and creative industries too. Mark, why do you go next? So I think the other thing we need to address is the other story, which is money. Okay, so money is this abstract concept. We all seem to accept it. <coughs> people have money, other people don't have money. And that concept allows people to have more services, more items, more goods. And I think what we need to do is change the stories about money. Why do certain people have the right to have more money than others? Okay, and why bankers are not surgeons, you know, so there are some really interesting value judgments that we need to make. So one of the most interesting concepts that I uh, play with many times and I enjoy is a universal basic income. If you happen to have a huge country with a huge amount of wealth, then every individual should have a right to that wealth. We have the right to the clean air, we have the right to sort of like exist, so therefore why not to the money? There is no, nothing special about money, it's just a concept. And in that, in itself, suddenly changes people's views. So if you have enough money to live, okay, not necessarily have three Teslas, and by the way, I'm sorry I'm picking on Teslas, um, but guess what? You can then make decisions. You can say, actually, I want to be creative. I'm gonna try and set up an art school in my local village. Or I can say, actually, I feel really bad, I'm going to step out and actually I'm going to look after my aging parents. Or I'm going to go and actually go back to university as a mature student because I want to retrain and I want to learn how to use AI to basically become that trillionaire. That suddenly breaks the requirement between work. We are in the fifth richest country in the world. We have food banks. We have people working two or three jobs and they are still in poverty. When we create $3.1 trillion every single year, it doesn't help that we have a billionaire who married an even richer billionaire as prime minister who I don't think has ever met a poor person in his life. Uh, I believe last time he took a helicopter to go and see the doctor in Manchester. Um, that doesn't fill me with any sort of like, but again, it's the story about money. If you change that, does it matter that we don't have enough jobs for every single person? No, because they could be doing more exciting things with their time. We could be going back to that hunter-gatherer time where you only spend about a third of your time actually doing stuff to live, and the rest is actually being human, being social, interacting, and creating beautiful friendships, beautiful pieces of work, of art. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I was just thinking if we just run with the idea of AI taking over all of our jobs, we can then cease to, to see ourselves as commodities in this whole thing. We can just forget this, this whole idea, a story, maybe at the beginning of that we are workers and we work this and we have our eight hour day and 
like we could just scrap that whole thing, then we can become more aligned with the more than human world around us. So thinking about a multi-species perspective, where like, I want to be more stoat, or maybe today I'm going to be a bit more seagull. And then we can, <laughs> then we can take this, this idea that work is the kind of primary thing that we get up in the morning for and turn it into something else. And then the way that we spend time in the environment and then how we are, how we relate to the natural world can become something different, something more protective and something we may be more aligned with. But taking away, and I'd go as far as just taking away, uh, the universal basic income, I'm like, thanks. But even take, you know, what if we took money out of the equation completely and had, had stuff that was just, <laughs> he just waved his hands. Sorry, is that too far? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think those thought experiments of being more than human are, are something that, that we could definitely look at. And just to say the point on AI, data is the thing that pin, underpins all of AI systems. And so the data is the stuff that you need to be looking at, where it's coming from and how it's informing the, the AI algorithms. Thanks. And Julie, I want to come back to you in a minute because we were talking at the beginning of the day about talking about money and yeah. the fact that many artists, and designers and artists copyright service, their 38,000 members, photographers and designers and artists, their average income from their art artistic and creative work last year was 5,000 pounds. This is not a way to make yourself rich. So I want to come back to you on that in a minute. But also, because we haven't got very much time, just a quick question for all three of you. And that is, one of the things that came up in the panel this morning was about the differences between science and the arts. And I'm paraphrasing a bit, but there was a kind of science is about certainty and art is about something else. But actually, it seems to me both arts and science are wrestling with uncertainties. Newtonian physics, did not prove to be the answer to a complete explanation of the physical world, but it wasn't untrue. Uh, quantum physics, no doubt the same thing. It's, it's struggling to create the certainties, but it's always going to be true, even if it's not certain. It seems to be both arts and science are, are exploring uncertainties, but they're not abandoning the truth. And I think in a time of misinformation that we're living in now, the distinction between certainty and truth is quite a complicated one. And I'd just be interested to know what each of you think about that in the work that you're doing. Perhaps, Mark, start with you. Um, so I actually completely agree. If you think about human experiences as a circle, on one side you have sciences, and on the other you have the arts. And I completely disagree with C.P. Snow. There is not a divide there. Actually, I would say that the most creative people that I know are scientists and artists. And there is this mixing at the top whereby those two areas. If you're trying to think about the world and the fundamentals of what controls it, what actually uses the actual energy, how it moves around, you have to be able to think in completely different ways to, and I say this in a terrible way, normal people. You know, you have to be able to be out there. Um, that does mean some of my colleagues should not be let out of the lab. Uh, they should not be allowed to talk to other people um, and definitely not talk to uh, sort of like the press. But again, you have those, that creativity there. And many uh, scientists I know are incredible musicians and vice versa. So I think, no, that's the crutch there. And actually, if our society will be changed, it will be by science, but also by art. And it always has 
been those two that have changed it. Never really been politicians. Thank you. Julie? Yeah, and that, that, CP, that, that divide of the art and the sciences is, I think, is more damaging than anything else. Like, like categorizing anyone into one small pot is not going to be helpful. But I think the idea of uncertainty, I mean, I love uncertainty. I think uncertainty is amazing. The mother's little sculptures over there are all about uncertainty and kind of like anticipation. And I think some of this obsession with being certain, with predicting the future, with what's going to come next, has led us to, I know I always talk about data, but it's led us to these vast data collection points where we're just so obsessed with controlling what's going to happen next, what's, what's just over there, because I don't want to feel uncertain. But actually, if you sit with the uncertainty, it is a beautiful emotion. It is something that can put you into a, a place where you're unsteady, and then that is a very creative place to be. And I think for artists and scientists and business people, I know creative people that are in all different kinds of jobs, and that they would say, oh, no, I'm not creative. That's your job. And actually, I see it in them in the way that they operate. And we all know there's loads of creative accountants, for instance. <laughs> and politicians. Yeah, this, this, this needless distinction between arts and sciences is, uh, I, I can only echo what's already been said. I think a really a powerful example of this is quantum computing. So, so the leading people in quantum computing, I mean, this stuff is mind-blowing. The sort of theoreticians of quantum computing think it infers the existence of multiple universes. Now, this is not me sort of sounding wacky. You know, I'd, I'd implore you to read a guy called David Deutsch, who is like one of the ur-prophets of Silicon Valley, and that the people that are really looking into this stuff and take it very seriously and want to make lots of money out of it, fundamentally, right? So um, when you're talking about multiple universes and, and probably the, 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 the possibly, rather, the backbone technology of what comes next with regards to computation, I think you should, we should probably be quite humble uh, when it comes to claims of, of, of certainty. And again, it's important to say that a theory is only a theory. And what's a theory? A theory is something which explains the phenomenon in the real world. A theory is only a theory if it can be falsified. If it can't be falsified, it's not a theory. It, it, you're in a cult. So this idea that scientists seek certainty and that artists, you know, they're the ones that engage with ambiguity and uncertainty, that's not, that's not true. And I'd also add to that, to have a good theory, you have to start with having a bad theory. So often when people say, oh, that's, that's stupid, or that's wild speculation, or that's nonsense, you're talking rubbish, or you're talking idiocy, or that's how, that's how we see human progress um, uh, move forward over time. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm gonna say something quite dangerous here, perhaps. You know, I, I kind of liked what Rishi Sunak had to say about people learning maths for longer. Um, and I, I think it would be wonderful if young people until 18 had to engage with creative and scientific subjects. Now, I don't know how you do that. Maybe a single module or whatever, but I find it tragic, actually, that you see young people at 13 or 14 pigeonholed into a certain life and career trajectory, a personality trajectory, fundamentally, right? You're an analytical person, you're a creative person. It's so toxic, and I, I do think at least that policy proposal does pose questions about how we address that. Look, that might not be the right answer. I, I would not have liked to have studied quadratic equations at 17. Uh, I'm sure many people in here wouldn't either. But, you know, I, I think it's an important thing and it's something we get very badly wrong in this country. I mean, Thanks. it's all very well learning maths, but they have to have art next, next to it. Exactly. Then. They can't be de demolishing all the arts exactly. programs. No, of course. Yeah. 
I like that story about Einstein when he was asked, what's your latest research project about? And he said, if I knew what it was about, I wouldn't call it research. And it seems to me that's exactly the area where both science and the arts are pushing the frontiers all the time. Now, there's loads of other questions I want to get to, but uh, we were talking about money a minute ago, and Julie just wanted you to have an opportunity to talk about what we were talking about earlier in the day. Yeah, thanks, John. I just wanted to say, uh, and I, there's a, a report out called, if you're interested in the sort of economies of the creative industries, particularly from an artist's perspective, there's a report that was launched in March 2023 called Structurally Fucked, and it is astonishing. It works with the artist leaks data. They collected anonymous data about how artists were paid by public institutions in the UK. And the findings from that report are, yeah, they make your eyes water. The median hourly rate that came out of it was £2.60. That's like a tenth of the recommended rate and maybe a fifth of, of the minimum wage. And so artists, and it kind of like proves that artists are the in-kind labor that we do is subsidizing an already um, financially strapped industry. And, and, and why is that? I mean, the idea that I was thinking about this and I was thinking, like do, like, do you like your job? Do any of you out there, do you like your job? Yeah, if you do, do you think you should be paid less then because you like your job? And this is the sort of perception of what artists are expected to do because they have a job that they love and that they're, they're, you know, they're kind of compelled to do, then they shouldn't earn any money. So it really is structurally fucked, but I recommend like, looking up that report and, and um, digging into it. Yeah, this is where economics and arts crash into each other. Uh, so one other thing I wanted to come on to, and that is it seems to me that very often we're, uh, we're a bit diffident about the real power of the arts and culture in our society. And one of the things that really struck me about the pandemic was that when all the kind of mighty engines of financial infrastructure ground to a halt, it was cultural and social infrastructure of communities that kept the world going. And I think it made a lot of people think very differently about the way the economy worked. And there was a lot of chat about rebuilding the economy, rebuilding, build back better, and so on. A lot of that has now evaporated, but I just wanted to get the panel's sense of how we can raise the real profound significance of arts and culture as one of the key infrastructures of the way all our societies work. Forget about the economic significance of it, it's absolutely core to everything that we do, far more so than the financial and economic infrastructures that we've created. So briefly, what's the panel's thoughts on that one and how we make a bigger noise about the significance of the arts and culture, if you like. The perception that art isn't embedded in our everyday lives and that, we're not witness, that we don't witness it all the time and that it's a separate thing is something that we need to, to, to talk about. I think um, artists, artists that do have a voice and do have a platform, they could maybe use their voice in, in, a, in, a, in a better way to help to look behind them and to help the people that are coming up. I think the creative industries are embedded in so many other industries, but they're seen as an add-on, whereas it, it could possibly be the other way around. But it's how to get to policymakers, isn't it, essentially? Yes. Um, to get them to value the arts, not as this kind of elite thing or something that they have on their wall or the people that invite to a dinner party for, um, to bring a good story or to wear a raspberry beret or whatever it might be, but to actually... Um, really listen to them, you know, put artists on boards, listen to what they have to say. Most of them have really deep thoughts about the world at large that could, that, that could be beneficial. 
What you just said, Julie, reminds me. Sir George Cox was asked to do a report on innovation in the British economy in 2005. And one of, it's a brilliant report, completely ditched by government, of course. One of his recommendations was that every major company in the country should have at least two artists on their board, which I thought was pretty revolutionary for a, a proposal, but it was not taken seriously by the government, tragically. Aaron. I think actually, I'll come at this kind of from a strange angle. I would say, how do you help the creative industries in this country? How do you elevate art? Address the housing crisis. Because, you know, I'm somebody who, I graduated in, what, 2006? So I, and I did my master's degree, and I graduated literally as Lehman Brothers was, was collapsing. And I've sort of had to make my way in the, in the world of work over the last 15 years when we've had stagnating living standards. And my experience of incredibly talented, creative people is they can't do what they want. They can't actually add the value to society they should be because of rent. Particularly in bigger cities like London, you're paying 50% of your income to rent. It's very hard to be creative. It's very hard to develop a skill. Um, it's very hard to take a risk or a punt on a, on a project or a business or a, or a non-profit operation or just you know, activism that you, you would like to do. So I think that that is a, a big one for me. I think, we have a, I think neoliberal societies are, are incredibly uncreative, partly because we don't provide people with the mental space and the leisure time um, in order to cultivate that. Uh, and instead, what we're doing is inculcating a, a constant anxiety, panic. You know, I moved, I moved 15 times in 15 years in London. Crazy. Crazy. I'm pretty sure it gave me an anxiety disorder. And we're doing that to multiple generations of people. We're doing that to the, to the core infrastructure of our society, which is us as human beings. There is no computer on the face of the planet which can add as much value as a human being right now, and yet we're, we're destroying that, that, cap, that human capital uh, to just an you know, incredible extent. So that would be the core one for me, the housing crisis. And that really hit me when I went to Denmark. Not that Denmark's perfect, but I remember going to meet a bunch of sort of leftists in uh, Nurebro, you know, the hipster left-wing part of, of Copenhagen. And they all had their housing, you know, communes and their bookshops and all these lo lovely lives. And it wasn't post-capitalist, it was nominally social democratic. Obviously, some of them were anarchists or whatever, but the, the setup was really social democratic. And what that showed to me was that all these things that you like to do on the side, whether it's the activism, the projects, the businesses you want to start, that's not really possible unless, unless you have a state willing to give people certain resources, housing, education, healthcare, and that's being taken away from us in this country. Yeah, thank you. Mark. Wow, what a big question. I mean, for me, I think it's rethinking the fundamentals of our society. Because at the moment, all the power resides with capital. And that's why it's called capitalism. If you spent all of your life working, you're never, ever going to make a million pounds. If you already have a million pounds, it's very easy to invest it to make another million. So uh, entrepreneurs that I know, they always say the first million is the hardest. So again, what we have to do is break that because guess what? Money's just a concept. And therefore, what should be important, which is how do you actually support every human being to basically maximize their potential, whether it happens to be in science, the arts, whether it happens to be in the service industry, whether it's just basically being a nice person. And I think that's where we have to actually step back. I was really hopeful that the pandemic, which showed people very, very starkly that the things that they missed was being able to hug people, being able to see their friends, 
going out and being social. Not how many T-shirts did you have, how many uh, shoes did you have, do you have blue shirts like we do? You know, it wasn't that. It was, wow, I can actually touch my relatives. Um, I also found out, by the way, guys, that, um, my God, do you know how tactile men really are? I hadn't realized this in the pandemic, which is the number of guys that I spend hugging. You know, it's like, I'm a man, I don't do this. But, you know, these are things that we realize. But then suddenly, it all went back to normal, and we've all been suckered back into that sort of, like, rat race. Somehow, we're going to have to break that. And if anybody comes up with a good solution, which doesn't involve mass murder and, of course, revolution, then please let me know, because I'll be with you. But can't we have a revolution? Oh, no, we can have a revolution, but most revolutions, unfortunately, are, yeah. Bloody. And I have to say, and one of the things we learned when Simon and I were writing the book, The Human Planet, was with each one of the steps between hunter-gatherers to agriculturists, agriculturalists to mercantile capitalists, and each step, the vulnerable, the indigenous people were always victims, always. And therefore, when we do have the revolution, we have to do it in a different way so we do not leave people behind, because it's very easy to do that. With the AI revolution, that will leave, could leave, billions of people behind. And so therefore, I agree, yes, revolution, but we have to do it in a different way to the way we've done it previously. And I don't know how. Okay, I think we should get some questions from the audience now. Uh, so we've been skating over an awful lot of subjects at a, at a very superficial level, frustratingly, but that's because of time. Yeah, there's a question over there, yeah. Thank you. Um, in terms of stories and the sort of other story in the political, political spectrum that we've been talking about. What do you think is the relationship between Marxism, post-Marxism, and climate change and nature? Is it a better relationship? Or is Marxism part of those stories that are at the twilight, to quote you, of um, finishing? Nice, simple question, Aaron. <laughs> So I think one, one way of answering that is to say, oh, well, I've said that we're at the twilight of the great acceleration, industrial society, liberal constitutionalism, and that Marxism was only ever a converse to those things, and so it's also saying it's twilight. But I'm possibly, I mean, I'd hope not. Louis Althusser, who I would never normally commend, he strangled his wife to death um, and somehow got away with it. Uh, quite morbid detail, but I think, you know, I, I don't want you to think I'm saying he's a, a wonderful person. He had an amazing um, description of Marx. He said that Marx was like Thales with mathematics, in that he discovered a new continent of thought. And it was for the rest of us to explore that continent. So he didn't have all the answers. And as Marx himself said, I'm not here to write recipes for the cookshops of the future. What he had was a critique of a new mode of production which was coming into view. That's why capital is called capital, a critique of political economy. It's not a blueprint, it's anything but, unfortunately, one might say. Um, so I, I would say that actually, you know, Marxism has a great deal to tell us still about this world we're in, even as it sort of ebbs from view, and particularly in, in relation to the, the climate question. Uh, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great question. I mean, we're talking here about creatives. So, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson, for instance, is one of the, the, one of the better sci-fi writers right now, um, who really focuses on um, issues of ecology, who's also a Marxist. You know, his PhD tutor was a guy called Frederick Jameson. Uh, so if you really want to probe questions of ecology, through a Marxist prism, 
and also read a novel, I'd recommend uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. If, um, uh, if we're dealing with economics as a form of storytelling, Marx did better than most people in terms of producing a lot of very, very complex issues to a coherent story. Mm. Let's get into that. Mark. Um, so, yes, I mean, Marx was one of the great economists, uh, and we should accept that. I think what we have to do going forward is the problem is stories have narratives, and the problem is Marxism has a particular sort of like story attached to it and has particular views that people pick up on instantaneously. So if we're going forward in the future, we will have to call it something different. And I think that's important. We have to create a new story based on all of the stuff that we know, but we move forward. And I think importantly is we need to understand why climate change and neoliberalism are directly opposed. And this is something that I uh, explain to my students. If you think about it, neoliberalism is about individualism, it's about sort of deregulation, it's about doing whatever you want to because the market drives in the correct way. Problem is, climate change is a global issue. It is about every single person actually contributing in a very small way or a very large way to a collective problem. It's the classic commons problem, which is how do we actually shift that? Now, the weird thing is economics is already changing now. Okay, so guess what? If we went straight down the neoliberalist approach, guess what? Uh, guess what? Renewable energy is nine times cheaper than a coal-fired power station. But people are still coal-fired power stations because of subsidies. So we don't even have a proper neoliberalistic sort of like system. So what we have to do in the future is then work out how do we think as a global species? And that's profound because we're really good as individuals. We're really good in a family unit. We're really good in a small tribe. And we even can actually deal with sort of like country-sized nationalism, which is good and bad, but we haven't been able to now evolve to the point that we actually think as a global species for the good of all on the planet and all the other life that we actually influence and unfortunately have control over. Julie. I have nothing to say about Marx, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very keen on that. But that, the, the comment about um, how do we think as a global, we're so used to seeing contrarians now being anti any, anything that isn't, that any, anything in fact, and that, that I read recently a report was about how those people, especially on social media, promoting loads of climate disinformation and general disinformation, are doing it because they're monetizing their audiences. So it's just yeah. a way for them to make money. Mm -hmm. People are getting angry and thinking that there's something to be a part of, but actually they're just triggering, yes. um, triggering everyone not to think globally. Let's have two more questions, both taken together, and then you 30 seconds each to answer whichever one you fancy. Yeah. Hello, thank you very much. Great panel. I suppose I'm interested in how you think the actual impacts, which of course are here, but we know that they're going to be much larger, might operate in terms of global collaboration so looking at social tipping points, for example, or geophysical tipping points, often are solved without boundaries, without borders, 
And so I wonder if, you know, a thousand years of husbandry of our climate, as it's going to probably have to be, might be part of the solution towards the new thinking. You know, what do you think of a rock bottom, I guess? And let's take the second question. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, a couple of you talked about policy making, and I think economics uh, as a form of storytelling is probably the dominant form of storytelling in, 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 in policy making. Um, and I, my reflection would be is because it's one that deals with certainty for a lot of policy makers, which, you know, is, is a, uh, if you're making good decisions about how to run a country, then obviously that's, you know, going to be a bit more uh, um, uh, comfortable. Um, so what's your strategy for bringing kind of the arts or, or you know, broader forms of storytelling uh, into policy making, how can we change the, the, the game of policy making and, and the role of the arts uh, in that? Changing policy making with the arts or a thousand years of husbandry to sort out the mess that we've created in the last 200 years? Who wants to respond to one of those? Okay, I'll, I'll kick off. Um, and I will say it is really difficult to imagine, there's a great question over there about what impacts will actually make countries sit up and take things seriously. Because last year, Pakistan got flooded, 30 million people were affected, and everybody shrugged their shoulders and went, oh, it was somewhere else. We have had a heat wave in London of 40 degrees. 6,000 people died, excess deaths, because of those two days. And everybody just went, oh, weather. So the problem is, at the moment, unless these things get really much worse, I can't see how certain policymakers are actually going to take it seriously. Um, and I have to say, to answer your question, as much as I love the arts, actually what is going to make a difference to policymakers is the new wave of economics coming through. The economics of Kate Raworth, Mariana Mazzucato, and the idea that when, I love the quote by the International Monetary Fund, which says, the previous generation of economic theory were probably wrong. Julie. Yeah, I like the, that, the donut economics um, yeah. stuff is really interesting, isn't it? I really like that. Uh, uh, thinking. I think, I don't know about rock bottom, but I, it, it, it occurred to me that in some countries where, they, um, where there's civil war or there's an uprising and they cut off the internet and they cut off people's communication technologies, then that's when, um, that, that's when anger starts bubbling. So it's interesting that the thing, it's, yeah, that it's about how we communicate what we're used to when that is taken away, that becomes a problem. I think the arts and policy, that's a really interesting question for, for me because we've been working a lot on kind of exactly that. How can we get policymakers interested in thinking about issues from different perspectives? And just last week, I was working with um, Furtherfield and people at uh, City University, and we did a more than human workshop about the Lee River, about pollution in the Lee River. And the workshop concluded role play, where everybody played a different thing. So somebody played some algae, I played a carp. Everyone took this perspective of an animal or an environmental thing, or someone was an AI expert, someone was a property developer. And we all had to discuss the problem very strictly from that perspective. And it was so good. So to engage policymakers in that way was really successful. And just switch, like, it's like turning their heads around to a different dial. Think about this, think about that. And it was fun, and it was fairly quick, and it meant that you could say things from not yourself, 
And so I think if, um, yeah, I think that's a really good way of engaging with policymakers at the moment. Um, I'll, I'll try and answer both quickly. Social tipping points, I think probably some sort of horrendous calamity has to happen, actually, before we get really momentous um, progress coming, particularly from multilateral organisations. Again, Kim Stanley Robinson, Ministry for the Future, which was um, a favourite book of Barack Obama, which I found rather strange because it includes the UN opening a black, black ops wing against the global 1%. But anyway, uh, for a former president to commend that, I was surprised, but good. Um, you know, that, that is uh, it's a great book, but it starts with really a, a catastrophe of tens of millions of people dying because of a, um, an extreme weather event. And I think probably something like that may have to catalyse action. It's just... That's just sadly where we are with our political class. Um, and in terms of the policy question, that's a great question. I would push back on the premise, though, because actually fiction does um, infuse lots of cornerstone ideas around economics. So Robinson Crusoe is the best example, right? Robinson Crusoe, he's stranded on an island. What does he do? He starts his accounts. He has his ledger. He tallies things up. He has Man Friday as his little PA. Like, that is, that is the story of capitalism. So even if you abstract a human being from society, they will still behave like a good little capitalist. And then more recently, Ayn Rand, and this, this, novel, this awful novelist, um, who has, in, has been an inspiration for so many neoliberals, um, Sajid Javid reads Ayn Rand to his wife every year. So, you know, a lot of that, when they're saying, we're, we're really, you know, committed to the economic orthodoxy, they're often committed to quite, quote, unquote, irrational ideas coming from people like Ayn Rand, to finish, um, you, you, there, are, there is evidence of obviously people drawing on ideas which aren't economic in public policy. Religion, you know, we have a theocracy in Iran. They draw on religious ideas for public policy, right? Or, or nationalism, Brexit, that wasn't done because of economics. Um, and I would sort of find a, a sort of compromise here. So just to follow up with what you said about Mariana Mazzucato, uh, great book. And actually I've spoken to so many people in like Silicon Valley people or VC people, tech founders who love Mariana Mazzucato because it is about entrepreneurship, it's about problem solving, but also recognize the state plays a central role in addressing major problems and doing really awesome things like the moon landings, the Manhattan Project. So it's an interesting synthesis of, yes, individuals make things happen. Yep, go and do it. Be the best person you can be. Go start something great. But also the state's a really powerful actor to do extraordinary stuff. And I think that's probably the next economic paradigm if we get our act together as a species. Uh, but I, I still think, like I said with Robinson Crusoe and with Ayn Rand, that, that art and culture can, can fuse that well. Thank you. Uh, just to finish on, from me, a personal no a positive note, uh, I've been doing some work in Azerbaijan, which is a completely oil-dependent economy, uh, and they're, they're developing a cultural strategy. I mean, no doubt, very, very corrupt and wicked government, but nevertheless, they're trying to change things. And one of the senior ministers said to me, we've got to get out of investing in black gold and start investing in human gold. And I think there's a kind of positive message happening in a lot of countries, particularly the ones that are really on the front line of climate change. But we're out of time, uh, so I'd like to say a big thank you to Julie, to Aaron, and to Mark. Fantastic panel. Thank you.